Hi everyone, um, good evening. It's lovely to see you here. I just about to see you all, all back there. Um, I'm delighted to welcome you all to Galway International Arts Festival's Vinyl Hours, um, live Vinyl Hours. Some of you do this as a podcast. My name is Tiernan Henry and I'm the host of the Vinyl Hours series. And this idea behind all of this is to have a series of conversations with, with artists, with creators, with just pe interesting people, I guess, um, looking at the musical soundtracks of their lives or variations on the music, whatever the soundtrack of their life was today or yesterday, whatever. You know. And Tom Waits reckons that songs are just interesting things to be doing with the air. And on vinyl hours, we think talking about songs isn't too bad either, even if it is only bravado, as the Blue Nile would have it. And you can listen to all of the, full, all of the playlists from all of the podcasts um, on the Galway International Arts Festival Spotify page. And if you like what you hear, please consider making a donation to Galway International Arts Festival, a non-profit organisation bringing the arts to people in Ireland and around the world. Go to giaf.ie and click Donate. So that's the corporate stuff done. <laughs> so today's guest is Sinead Burke. Born in Dublin? No, 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 first. Just, we'll build up to this. Born in Dublin, Sinead has a dizzying array of accomplishments under her very chic belt. She's an award-winning and best-selling author, a staunch advocate of accessibility. She's been at the Met Ball in the Obama White House on the cover of Vogue, and she's on the Council of State. She's one of the most stylish people you'll meet, and she's a former alternative Miss Ireland. But for today, we're going to talk about the music that moves her. So please welcome Sinead Buck. Thank you so much. I should probably start this with the caveat that I have been told by several people, strangers mostly, that I have terrible taste in music. So welcome. <laughs> the next hour is going to be interesting. Buckle up. Yeah. Well... It's a fascinating list, I think. Uh, it's a really, really interesting list. And what we're going to do is we'll, we'll play snippets of the songs, but we'll talk about them. So I think, um, first off, I'd like to thank you for doing this. This is a terrible imposition on you, because normally when we do these kind of things, we try and tie them in with the real talks that are kind of the adult talks that happen elsewhere in the festival. And this has got nothing to do with anything <laughs> other than a bit of fun. And, but also really just to talk, I suppose, from my perspective doing this, I think one of the great things about music is how democratic it is. Yeah. Anyone can listen to it anywhere and no one can stop you from, you know, you can, if you want to listen to jazz, classical, if you want to listen in your headphones, whatever, anyone can get into it. So everyone has a valid opinion on it. And, you know, the, my wife used to say, because when she'd look at me mucking about with all our rubbishy music at home, she'd say, it's simple. There's the good stuff and there's the shit. <laughs> so and most I know, but I fell in the latter category. So this is all good stuff we're going to be listening to here. And as well, we, we might as well start. We'd start with the song and then we'd take sure. it from there. So Sinead's first choice is a version of a song. It was originally released in 1972 by um, Gwen McRae, and then Elvis recorded it, and it became a monster. And then uh, Willie Nelson recorded it, and then everyone recorded it. And then 10 years after Elvis died, these two guys from England recorded it, um, Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe. Uh, they did it as uh, an Elvis tribute, for an Elvis tribute album. So we'll just listen to a little bit of it to start, okay? So off we go, Dan. Why, Sinead? You know, it's funny. I have been in Galway for a couple of days and just an hour ago got to stand on stage and be in conversation. And actually, this feels much more intimate and vulnerable. And it's probably because, as you said, music is quite obviously the soundtrack of our lives, but it is so individual and subjective that in choosing the songs that I wanted to play today, they are very much part of me, Sinead, as a person, and rooted in my family and experiences that have meant a lot to me personally. So I actually feel really exposed in a good and challenging way. Music has been central to my whole life. My parents have excellent taste in music. And when we were growing up, and as part of a big family, we did a lot of long car journeys mm -hmm. together as a collective. And with that was music. You know, my parents listened to a lot of reggae. They listened to a lot of Pet Shop Boys. I didn't know that those artists were different to what potentially other parents were listening to or exposing their children to at the time. I remember going to a Take That concert when I was probably in my late teens with some friends and the Pet Shop Boys were supporting and 
no offense to any of the boys and take that, but I was just so excited about the Pet Shop Boys because knowing their experiences and the representation within the queer community that they did in the 80s and the 90s and the stories that they held true, but just there was nothing like listening to that song and feeling both escapism and wanting to get up and dance. Yeah. There is, it's so difficult to be in a bad mood listening to that. And really, it's testament to my parents' excellent taste in music and importance in music in our lives. Whether that was us learning to sing, us learning musical instruments, or just enjoying music and that being an individual escape. And it started with bands like the Pet Shop Boys. Yeah, and then I suppose so. At home, was it just stuff in the like? Was it just stuff you were on those car trips or on the radio or stuff, or were you getting it from school as well and from friends? Or I know? learned to play the recorder in school. Fair play to you. I have since lost that skill, <laughs> which is quite a skill Next in itself I that I lost you, I'll, that skill. I'll add in recorder your recorder play. skills. <laughs> I also played the trumpet for a very small amount of time, uh, and I think I just liked making noise, and yeah. I have been able to do that without instruments ever since, which is uh, very good. Um, music was, was important because it gave us pathways, I think, as a family to, to chart different experiences. My dad was born in the UK, came to Ireland, discovered his family in Tipperary. My mother had all sorts of different backgrounds and emigrated. And music was was a blueprint that kept us yeah. all connected. We listened to a lot of Joe Jolin. I think I know the whole discography, lyric by lyric. And it was just wonderful. It wasn't something necessarily that we were taught in school. Yeah bar the kind of tonic sulfa, but it yeah. wasn't really exposure that yeah. I had. It really did come from home. Right. And then I suppose, because your age, I suppose, in the mid, like in the mid 90s, um, you know, in England, it was the brick pop, you know, the, 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 the boys in the schoolyard pushing each other around. But there was also the riot girl thing in the, the 90s, and it, which is your second choice, I suppose. And where did, where did that come from then? Was that exposure in school or was that, or like with your friends or whatever, or was that more you just heard it on the radio and you think, oh, that's for me? So when I made my first Holy Communion, I was eight at the time, we had this rule in our family that in terms of receiving your Holy Communion money, you had to do specific things with it. You could buy yourself one gift. Okay. You had to buy your siblings a gift and the rest went into the credit union. And with my communion money, I bought Spice World, the movie, on VHS. It was bright green. Uh, and I bought it. They came in specially commissioned tins based on... People are nodding. You have them too. Welcome to the club. <laughs> based on who your favourite Spice Girl was. Um, you know, I picked... Victoria Beckham, which is probably the reason why I continue to have a bob. We're not going to dwell on that because that's years of therapy that I would have to dive into. Uh, but I did, and I viscerally remember Spice World, the movie, but also just the movement that the Spice Girls created, the yeah. idea that the pop industry was personality-driven and was so individual because I think what we had seen before was that bands became this conglomerate in and of themselves with little identity. Yeah. I didn't know how commercial it was at yeah. the time, but really that gave me this great insight into different types of people and characters. And, you know, to be sitting in front of you now wearing this dress where one of the most iconic lines in Spice World is Victoria going, it's so tough, what'll I wear? The little Gucci dress? The little Gucci dress? Or the little Gucci dress? She wore the little Gucci dress <laughs> is what she wore. Um, so this seemed like absolutely necessary as a second track. Yeah, and I, but just before we play a little bit, I think it's kind of interesting as well because, like you were saying about the, particularly the boy bands were very much all alike. Mm -hmm. You know, they all wore you know the white white shirt and white suit or whatever the thing. Yeah, was. and they so stood was, for yeah. the high note. But but the Spice Girls were different. Mm -hmm. You know, and again, I mean, I know part of it was it was packaging. You know, yeah. but they were part of that as well. I mean, they were part of creating their own design, and rather than just simply Louis Walsh saying. Like, right boys put on the white suits or put on the black suits for today or whatever colour, you know. So there was something else about them as well, I think, wasn't there? I think there was this notion of, of girl power, which we were probably put into, you know, second wave feminism <laughs> now rather than third wave. There was a bit of intersectionality, but not much. Uh, and, you know, girl power within capitalism is an interesting notion in and of itself. But it felt like the first time that we had conversations surrounding that, yeah. at least in the playground. Yeah. And I was very much aware of the Spice Girls as this entity within my time in school and my maturation. And yeah, I mean, 
it feels very surreal to now be in a position where I can talk about the idea of buying the VHS, which was specially commissioned by Victoria Beckham, to now be working in a fashion system where I have got to sit across from, interview mm -hmm. Victoria Beckham, yeah. and where she shared a story with me where, you know, when I was growing up admiring her, she was the person who had everything, who looked like she had no flaws, no problems, yeah. nothing. And when we spoke, she talked about how badly bullied she was as a child. Right, yeah. And it revealed to me that we have no idea the experience that people are living through, yeah. nor what they have lived through. So for me, it feels very full circle, and I'm still a fan of the Spice Girls. Great. Well, sure, why don't we listen to a piece of Say You'll Be There? So, Dan? Dan enjoyed that, because we got lots <laughs> yeah, of Spice got, Girls. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dan's revealing a lot about Dan today, I think, as well. I'm a fan of Dan. <laughs> So we're still, we're, we're staying a little bit, we're staying in 1984 for the next track. And, um, or sorry, no, no, it started in 1984. Wham released uh, Freedom in 1984. And then George Michael left, well, they broke up and George went on his solo career. So in 1990, he released Freedom 90. Freedom exclamation mark 90 was the, the next one. So, and it became a monster of a hit. And again, so why, where was this for you? And how did you, was it Wham first and then George Michael or George Michael and then all the other stuff or how? This is where I reveal my own biases and flaws. <laughs> because what I like most about George Michael's music is the music in and of itself in terms of Wham, but also the videos. If I think of moments of fashion and music, yeah. There are fewer more powerful than the supermodels. And it was really the first time that they were supermodels mm -hmm. as a collective appeared within general cultural consensus because they, for the first time, moved from fashion into music and public and popular culture. And I cannot listen to his music without thinking about Cindy Crawford, Naomi yeah. Campbell yeah. traipsing down a runway. And when we think about fashion and music, it's easy to go to Madonna, Vogue, David Bowie, fashion. But for me, with fashion being so important to who I am as a person and also my work, this is one of those soundtracks that I feel bridges or is a friction between fashion, music and culture. Yeah, well, I think we should listen to this. So, Dan, let it roll. This is a really interesting one, I think, as well, because the, the, the tune, loads of people, I remember when this came out, people said, oh, that's the Rolling Stones. Oh. And then someone else, oh, it's Primal Scream. And then Lord uses the same thing. Mm. And Elvis Costello came out about recently, and he just said, we all remake these things. Yeah. So, yeah, he said, it was a great idea then. It was still a good idea. So someone else has rebated it, and that's what he did, like, what George did, I guess, with it. But it's similar to fashion yeah. in that you'll have a musical motif exactly, yeah. that you're inspired by yeah. that will play out in future tracks, yeah. that you'll move the spoke in a bigger wheel. Yeah. And in fashion... The industry is constantly inspired by the past, the present, yeah, the future. Yeah. So there's good harmony to it. There is. And I suppose it is that, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants notion, you know, that, yeah. you know, there, there are loads, obviously, of original ideas, but people have all these other experiences, you know, so they do hear things and they soak them up. And again, I suppose, like fashion, you see things probably you don't even know subliminally that you're you're absorbing it and you're thinking, God, that was really good. That was a really interesting thing or that was a really interesting look. And well, stuff, some of my you know. favourite conversations growing up were like, you know, coming into my parents, announcing to them about the great new big hit that I just loved. And they were like, <laughs> yeah, that was around in the 70s yeah. and in the 80s. And I think it made an appearance again in yeah. the 90s. Yeah. Um, and going back to what you were saying in terms of being on the shoulders of giants, we often feel like we're the first or our moment in time is uh, we can feel like we're alone because of that. And yeah. I think it's always important to acknowledge the past, whether that is in culture or people themselves, that mm -hmm. we are where we are today because of the tireless effort, work, advocacy, creativity yeah. of those that have come before us. Yeah. And, you know, in, in kind of, I suppose, in keeping with that, then, like when you listen to music, the, the tracks you've picked here, how much of your not just your past are they, but how much of your, of your now are they as well? They're still part of it. I mean, if I had to show you my playlists, thankfully we could only pick seven or eight tracks today. But if I could even show you the long list, they included Mine Hair from Cabaret. But I thought I'd save you that moment. <laughs> uh, though I have been listening to it 
on repeat what that says about my current state of being. We'll leave for discussion later. Um, but I move from period and genre. I listen to a lot of Nicholas Bertel, the classical composer yeah. who has done the soundtrack for Succession, um, because I just think if you are having a bad day, if you listen to one of his compositions in the same way with Ennio Morricone, you will feel more powerful and better because of it. But yeah, I, I, my musical choices is very much based on my mood, my feeling, the one that I'm in, the one that I want to be lifted out of, yeah. but also a level of, of productivity. Uh, I live with my grandmother, and she recently said to my mom, you have terrible taste in music. <laughs> and my mother had to inform her, that's Sinead. <laughs> that loudspeaker that's constantly playing terrible things. That's Sinead. And my grandma was like, oh, yeah, there you how go. nice. <laughs> and your mother said, we tried our best. We tried. <laughs> we gave her the best education we could in music. And still, it's mine here yeah. 45 yeah. times on repeat. And, does, and then does the music kind of get tied in with the rest of the work? Do you know, do, do you find that... Um, it's like I find music is a, a great balm at times for certain, you know, but it's also just something you need to hear because you're, you want something that's really joyful, you know, that it covers all emotions. Yeah. And, um, and I find sometimes that like when I'm at work, sometimes I'll, I'll have things playing and I won't even know what I'm playing, but you're yeah. humming away and you're thinking, oh, that was really good, you know, but you've, it's at the background. So in your sort of other, in your creative life, I guess, like does music play a part directly in that? I would be very sensory in terms of my kind of requirements for myself in terms of work if I'm feeling overwhelmed I have to have light air yeah. and probably sound as, as quickly as possible and I find that that deflates the tension within my body and that can be anything just throwing a playlist on or yeah. putting shuffle on and I will feel it physically in myself decrease and come back to a more central space or position. But that's the same way if I'm feeling nervous, I'll usually put a piece of music on. Or if I'm feeling excited about something, yeah. that is the soundtrack that I need to hear too. But yeah. it's very core to me, um, which is why I'm probably uh, very protective yeah. of what the music I enjoy is because it's so subjective. Yeah, you're, but you're right. And I think, in a way, I think the music is really subjective. It's extremely, you know. Yeah. And I think there's one thing I always say to people is, like the people say to me, what would you pick? And I said, I couldn't. And I know if I had to, I would, you know. Yeah. But I think this is, again, it's such an unfair thing to try and pin people down to, you know, to the six or seven tracks that whatever, do you know. And like, obviously, everyone I've done, we've done this, people would say, the next day they said, I should have done this, or I should have done that. And you think, yeah, but you know, it doesn't have to be the definitive thing. It's almost like a snapshot of, you know, today or yesterday, whenever, you know. And it's challenging because so much of the reason why we might like some music we actually don't have a rationale for yeah, it. Yeah. I think I spent all of my leaving cert, and this is me absolutely revealing too much, listening to one song on repeat in order to get through the study period. And it was Cheryl Cole's Parachute, I think. I have no idea why. <laughs> I'm not sure about what the impact was that she had on my life. But if I'm going through stressful periods, going back to mine hair and cabaret, I will listen to something on repeat. And I think it is a bam. I think it's a sense of comfort yeah. in whatever uncertainty is going on yeah. around it. And yes, during my living search, it was Cheryl Coe. Good stuff. Yeah, that would definitely go into the good <laughs> pile of music, wouldn't it? Well, it's in the pile. Let's just say it's in the pile. <laughs> it can be, it can be categorized. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. So let's go back to 1980. And um, this is a, a great track you, you picked as well. This is one that um, Niall Rogers and Bernard, Ad Bernard, Bernard Edwards, who were in Chic, were working with Diana Ross. And um, and they wrote this song for which, I mean, she's in, in this. Maybe we'll talk, we'll just listen to the track first. So, Dan, if you just want to play a bit of this first. As loud as you can. Yes, as loud as you can. Diana Ross. Well, I love Diana Ross. It, there are so many people in which we can use the word iconic about. And usually we use it falsely. But mm. I think Diana Ross is absolutely deserving of that from her era in the Supremes, her own era, and then she has a bevy of very talented children. If you do not follow Tracy Ellis Ross on Instagram, go do it. Maybe not right now, but like in a minute. Uh, she's really extraordinary. But the reason why I picked this song is because of its evolving meaning 
to different communities and how it's used. The lyrics are very clear, I'm coming out. The spinal cord of much of my success and comfort and confidence in who I am came about in my late teenage, early adolescent years. It was rooted in my family, who always told me that I could do anything that I wanted to do and be anything that I wanted to be, and we should change the world to fit in. But it was when I started going to university that the challenges I was experiencing as an individual, as a disabled individual, was very different to my counterparts. Mm -hmm. When I was in school, I think through the advocacy of my parents, it was a bit easier to assimilate. And actually, the place in which I found home in my early adolescence was in the queer community. I remember the first time I went to the George, a queer and gay club in Dublin. Two drag queens, Veda and Davina, were on stage. My friends and I were going, but them being them, they were late. If you haven't been to the George, if you have a table, if you're not there by 11, your table's gone. I can't see from anywhere else mm -hmm. in the club and in the pub. And we got there after 11, our table was gone. And Veda and Davina saw what was happening and were rooting underneath in the stage to find stools. And they found them so that I could see. After the drag show finished, which was spectacular, everybody got up on stage to dance, as one does. I have spent my life being the object of other people's attention and have probably become, in my personal life, a bit more protective of myself because of that. I'm conscious of being in other people's spotlight. I love music, I love to dance, mm -hmm. but often that makes me a punchline in somebody else's joke. It makes me uncomfortable. But the music started and I really wanted to dance and I remember viscerally getting up on stage and dancing and nobody caring because in that space, we were all different. Yeah. We had all been othered by society in some way, and it was a safe space for all of us there. That led to me entering Alternative as Ireland, yeah. which in a way was a token of gratitude to that community for welcoming me and for allowing me to enter and for inviting me in. And I'm just so grateful that those are still some of the spaces that I feel most welcomed most included mm -hmm. and most accepted. And I'm coming out is such a mantra, but also so hard when I think of myself being physically disabled, not that the two experiences compare. My disability is so obvious, which is where sometimes I experience challenges, but it's also a real asset. Mm -hmm. And for those in the queer community across the spectrum, whether they be gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, or use the moniker of queer, that whole process of having to expose yourself to the world requires such vulnerability and trust of people around you um, that I'm so grateful to be welcomed into that community. Yeah. And do you think, I mean, I know the Georgia obviously was a focal point for, you know, for a long, long time. Do you think there's, there are those spaces, there are more of those spaces in Ireland now? I think there are less. Yeah. What we're seeing is a deconstruction of nightlife in general. Yeah. And that has yeah, specifically yeah. focused on the queer community. And it is more than nightlife, right? It's community. Yeah. And it is a haven. Yeah. And our erasure of those spaces, whether that's due to tenancy and renting laws, is further othering people out of society. Mm -hmm. Because if they don't have places to gather when it's safe to gather, or that it's accessible to gather, yeah. it is an explicit command that says, you are not welcome. Yeah, and I suppose it's been heightened by the COVID, obviously, you know, and yeah. and, and I was like, like say the clubs are still affected by it, and you know, live music is coming open. back, but they're still struggling to open places. Absolutely, you know, and, and, and lots of people gain employment in those spaces yeah. and can't or yeah. won't or don't feel safe to do yeah. it in others. Yeah. So it's it's more than just a rule that we must wait. And I think various communities have understood the need to wait, but. There needs to be an action plan. Yeah. And I think, you're, you're, like, I suppose, staying within the kind of topic we're talking about, I suppose the music itself as well is, is so welcoming. Like you say, everyone got up and danced. And it, but the focus was the music. The focus wasn't the dancers. But music you know, is so, such a connector. Yeah. I remember going to my first ever Little People convention. I was probably seven. 
when I went to the UK. Right. It was in Manchester, maybe? I could be misremembering it. But when I was on the dance floor, it was my first time ever to be on a dance floor with everybody at the same height. Yeah. I spend all of my time dancing like this. It's not attractive for anybody who needs to look at me. But I remember Whitney Houston was playing. Um, I can only ever listen to that song and think of and that think memory. Of, yeah. And like factually, it's just a piece of music, right? Yeah. But that was the first time I felt like I belonged in a space like that yeah. with people who all looked like me. And that's the power of music and actually the importance of it yeah. when we bring people together. Yeah, and I suppose it's the simplicity of it as well, but also that you know, music can be such a signifier yeah. in our lives for lots of different things. Absolutely. You know, whether it's just, oh, I remember this, you know, from, right, I don't mean only, no, but you know, that you tie it to a particular experience. And then again, because, and the great thing is, you can hear that randomly. Yeah. You know, and, and it'll instantly, you know, you can be walking by a shop and it'll be coming out and you go, oh, yeah, look, I remember that, you know. Or, you know, or, if it's or, a song about yeah. a breakup and you're like, oh, great, I'm just crying into my soup. <laughs> but not alone. You're, you know, you're doing yeah. the music, you know. So let's bring it up a bit closer to, you know, the next two tracks are much more recent. You mm. know, I suppose the, the ones, were, the, those are really interesting ones you've picked so far, I think. And... And they're really like they're real grounders, I think. You know, in a way, like they're, they open they're, they're open. They're heavy. foundational in a curriculum. There you go. Thank you. I'm going to use that term again. Foundational in a curriculum. Okay. Okay. So those foundational tracks that we listen to, the the next two um, are from 2018, and um, the first one I didn't know. I had to to look it up, but maybe we just play about this. This is um, Sophie Tucker. So Dan, if you can just play a bit out. That's Sophie Tucker. See, this is where you're like, oh, really? She went from that to that. Um, Sophie Tucker yeah. are two people called Sophie and Tucker. I gave a TED talk in 2017. The person who was on before me was the art director of The New Yorker. And the person who was on after me has designed every logo that we culturally know, from Saxon Fifth Avenue to the Hillary Clinton presidential right. logo. I had never felt more out of my depth mm -hmm. than in that moment. So much so that the rehearsal the night before was absolutely horrific. I was in New York on my own. I was standing on the red dot in Ted's headquarters and I just forgot all nine and a half minutes of text. And there's no prompter at Ted. Mm -hmm. You just have to deliver it on the spot. And in the day that was following, I was really nervous because it was the live recording was the next day. What I didn't know in the days before was that there would be an interlude between the six talks. There would be three musicians, three. The musicians were Sophie Tucker. Right. They were an unknown duo at the time and they had a couple of songs, a brilliant one called Awu. Mm. Tucker is probably six foot seven. The man is enormous. And Sophie is so ethereal as a person. Mm. I think we both in that moment felt like we probably shouldn't be here. How did we get in? And we bonded over it and have become very close friends since. Mm -hmm. As their friend, it has been an honor to watch their trajectory rise internationally. Mm -hmm. But I picked this specific song because have you seen Ocean's 8? So Ocean's 8 is the yes. one with all the gals yeah. where they robbed the Met Gala. It's actually better than any of them with all the lads, but that's my biased opinion. But Kate Blanchett enters the film in a nightclub to that song. Mm -hmm. And I have never had a moment where somebody I know is part of like such a big cultural moment that I was like, oh my God, Kate Blanchett is walking into Sophie and Tucker's track. And I'm so pleased for them and so proud of them. And they continue to be an enormous success. But they came to Dublin probably about two and a half years ago. And they text me, they're like, it'd be a great idea if you joined us on stage to sing one of the songs. And I was like, sure, <laughs> why not? <laughs> and we did one of their tracks, Awu. And Tucker was like, I know it could be a great idea. You know, for the instrumental bit where we do a dance, you could get on my shoulders. And I was like, sure. <laughs> We didn't do any rehearsal. Why would you? you know. We're all pals. <laughs> yeah. What is the worst that can happen? Oh, but it did. Where we were live on stage, the instrumental is on, and Tucker was like, just get up on my shoulders. <laughs> uh, what? 
And he was like, I'll bend down. And I, there's probably a video of it somewhere on the internet. And I am like grappling to get onto his shoulders. And as I'm on, he like teeters to the right with the weight. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to die at a Sophie Tucker concert. Thankfully, he regained his balance. I was up there, God only knows what I was doing. And we came down in time for the end of the instrumental. And that is the end of my singing and performance career. Thankfully, in 30 seconds. To date. <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm good. I still love them despite the almost near-death experience. Yeah. Uh, but that's best friend. You brought it up. You brought up the TED talk. So how did you get? How did that come about? I was speaking at a conference in Dublin, and I met this amazing American woman who was doing some work around disability and design. Mm. And she was like, "You should come to New York." I was like, 23, and I was like, "Sure." Why not? Ma'am, Dad, I'm off to New York. Who are you going with? Some woman. Lovely. Great. Be safe. And she was hosting this event, which just so happened to be in Ted's headquarters. Mm. And it was about 20 minutes before the event. She said to me, so uh, I'm really nervous. Um, I actually can't give the speech. Will you give the speech? Okay, the only thing that was kind of getting me through was, I'm going home tomorrow. None of these people will know who I am. Okay, I'll help her. And mm. I said, sure, where's the speech? And she was like, oh, no, it's not written down. <laughs> to give my like, speech, but I don't know what I'm going to say. Yeah, but you say it. Yeah. I was like, oh, Mike, like, what are you talking about? And she was like, listen, it'll be fine. Just welcome people. Introduce them. Give a brief insight mm. into disability and design. I was like, this feels like a lecture. So we were in this room. And everybody was sitting along the walls. And I was really conscious and I could hear my mother in my head where she was saying, no, don't stand at the top, you'll have your back to people. So I stood in the centre of the room and rotated on the spot for about five minutes. Because whilst I was doing that, I was at eye level with everyone because they were all sitting. I have no idea what I said. I came home to Ireland and then got this email from this woman called Cindy. And she was like, hey, Sinead. It was so great to meet you in New York. Excellent speech. Um, I actually work at TED. Have you ever considered giving a TED talk? I was like, no. And she was like, I think you should. She said, in March next year, we're going to be doing a series of talks around design. Mm -hmm. I said to her, listen, I'm not a designer. I'm a teacher. I have no expertise in this field. I can't participate in this. And she said, no, I think you have questions that are necessary to ask the design industry. I think you should do this. So I wrote the first draft of the TED Talk and I genuinely thought it was amazing. And I was like, TED are going to be blown over. Like, they just won't be able to believe that this gal in Ireland wrote this talk. So I like sent it off with complete confidence and I was like, oh, having been talked into it. The email that came back was, oh, the life really goes out of it when you write it down. <laughs> and I thought, give it another go, will mm -hmm. I? And we spent from the October all the way through to the March crafting the yeah. script because every word is curated and measured. But it really was the most nerve-wracking thing I had probably ever done. And I remember having to coach myself into physically doing it. I was standing in the accessible bathroom in Ted's headquarters probably about an hour before. Yeah. And I was literally looking at myself in the mirror. And I was feeling so nervous because I had heard all of these things like, oh, you're doing a TED talk. That'll change your life. I'm like, yeah, if so it's no good <laughs> or if it's bad, it'll change your life. And I just couldn't. I was like, oh, my God, here is this opportunity that I feel totally a lack of control over and all that it might mean. I just can't mess this up. And I just said to myself, you know, nobody can deliver this talk in the way that you can, because this is your story. And you cannot control if this will change your life, yeah. because it is based on how other people perceive it because of their lived experience. So you might never get an opportunity to speak on a stage like this again. Why don't you just enjoy it? Because if you dread this moment, what a terrible memory to have. So I took a deep breath and, yeah, went out onto the red dot and it changed my life. Great. Yeah, it wasn't bad. <laughs> <laughs> and just, like, say, following on from that then, and if, I suppose, 
going into that kind of situation where you worked it, you know, where mm -hmm. you knew the thing was being, mis well, not being massaged, but, you know, honed, I guess, probably, yeah. for, so that they, I presume what they wanted was to ensure that your voice was unfiltered in a way, so that yeah. you weren't kind of not censoring yourself, but maybe couching things too much. And I suppose what they were trying to get was really good, a really good six or seven minutes out of you, you know, that Absolutely. was trying to perfectly do. honest. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And then trying for it to land yeah. with the right and all audiences. Yeah. And they had great insight into that. And it was such wonderful coaching and preparation yeah. that, you know, coming from the classroom being a teacher, I think anybody who's a teacher is an excellent public speaker and an excellent performer. Every teacher should probably do stand-up comedy because you are like literally in front of this bored audience like seven hours a day for like a whole year. And they're like, really? You're going to teach us maths? And math? you're like, yes! <laughs> um, so being able to leverage those skills and then the coaching from Ted was just so fundamental to all that I've been able to do since. Yeah. Uh, they were brilliant. Because... But I think, it's, I think this ties really nicely with the next track you've picked because I, it's, it's not so much the track itself, but the singer, it's Janelle Monet. And, you know, I think like there, there are a lot of parallels between the two, you mm. know, oh, you're more than just one, you know, it's like, but, but it's the same, you know, like Janelle Monet is, she's a writer producer, but she's an actress as well, you know, and she's a, a writer of music, but a writer you know, yeah. of nonfiction as well. And I think, it's from the same era, so this yeah. is kind of 2017, 2018 as well, isn't it? Uh, I am obsessed with Janelle Monáe uh, and have been for quite some time, both from a fashion perspective, from, as you said, yeah. the multifaceted element to her work. But the reason why I also picked this song was I have gotten to be in Janelle's proximity once in my life, which was at breakfast on the day of the Met Gala. <laughs> uh, and everybody stays in the same hotel. So you're at breakfast and you're like, is that Kim and Kanye having fruit? <laughs> it is. Jesus, is that Janelle? It is. Um, so we were both queuing and she looked very much Janelle Monáe and I did not look like Janelle Monáe nor myself at breakfast the morning of the Met Gala because I was very unwell. And I was like, let her in. I was like, Janelle, after you. I also got in a lift with Ava DuVernay, which was like the weirdest experience and wonderful in my life. Um, but Janelle, I think, has been a transformative kind of catalyst within so many industries. Mm. I think, really importantly, Janelle has understood that visibility is not enough, nor is it success. Because if we only measure success by visibility, we are still adhering to the gaze and to the mission of those who do not look and think like us. So she, rightfully so, wasn't satisfied with just being the artist mm -hmm. and the songwriter, has set up a record company, has also set up a production company, has been in amazing films, creative directs others, and now is using all of those resources that she has to invest in the next generation of talent to actually not just change the system, but build a new one. Yeah. Uh, so I like her. I think she's great. She's impressive. <laughs> so we, we listen to a little bit of Make Me Feel from Janelle Monáe. Bang a prince off that, isn't there? Oh, yeah. It's great. And like you just said as well, like one, an, another aspect of her life, I suppose, is, is her style as mm. well. You know, she's a really, really distinctive style, sort of built around the tux or variations and versions of the tux. So it's, but she's taking control of that completely. It's about agency, isn't yeah. it? And it's about taking a garment, like, yeah. as you said, a tuxedo or a suit that has been very deliberately positioned within menswear yeah. and a very specific type of yeah. man. And she's going, no, I'll have that and I'll remake it. But and in terms of... remake it as well. Exactly. You know, yeah. And in terms of one of the best, I think, fusions of between fashion and music, I'm not sure if you've seen her music video for Pink with Grimes. Oh my God, she has a pair of trousers that yeah. are a vagina. They are <laughs> the most amazing thing I have ever seen and deserve to be in every museum in the world. Yeah. I'd love a pair. My parents would not <laughs> like your for granny? me to have a pair. How would you my granny, granny she, uh, I've, I've given up. I mean, she has given up on me in terms of my fashion items. I have lots of pieces in my wardrobe that I describe as the mam repeller. And my mother will go, oh, you're wearing that thing. <laughs> Outside. In public. Oh, so now I just send screenshots to pals and I'm going, will I wear the green suit and all the G's for Galway? I did not think of this joke. Somebody outside gave it to me and they were like, oh, the G's for Galway. I was like, I wish. <laughs> I do not. Um, but I think Janelle is 
amazing. And as somebody who is setting up a business, trying to create change and support the next generation, she is somebody that I uh, admire enormously yeah. and learn from. And we're kind of getting towards the end, so we have two more to go. And what's interesting, I think, well, and they're two, uh, they're one very strong female voice, and then one very strong female voice, but in a band setting. So the two. What's interesting about them is they're both from Limerick, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> so we've gone international, we've gone the full mm. circle, and the, your last two tracks are, are um, from Denise Child and then Cranberries. Yeah. So maybe we take the tracks together, but maybe we can talk about, like, why, I suppose, I mean, Denise is very much of the moment. Yeah. You know, and, but again, I think she follows, she's probably at that earlier stage of where you were and where Janelle was as well. She's taken complete ownership of all of this. It's her sound, her look, everything about it. I think when we listen to this Denise track, it starts with the question, where are you from originally? And she's asking that question, but we know from it that it's a question she has been asked. Mm -hmm. And again, in terms of taking ownership of it, she's choosing to open this track with it to really reclaim a power over the language and the narrative. It is a piece of music, but it is also an incredible piece of spoken word mm -hmm. poetry when you listen to it. A lot of my work is rooted in identity and the multiply marginalized facets of each of our identities and also the privileges that we hold. And when we think of what Ireland is, who Ireland is, we often reflect on the past. We are the island of the saints and scholars. We are the Cade Mila Folja and the 100,000 welcomes. Are we? And to who? We haven't always been to disabled people. Mm -hmm. We haven't always been to queer people. We absolutely always haven't been to people of colour and black people. And I think Denise Chyla's work, along with many of the artists who are coming up at the moment in Ireland, makes us uncomfortable <laughs> some of the time because we see ourselves in it. Because everybody in this room has asked the question of, where are you from originally? And mm. we've probably asked it since before the era of Phil Linnett yeah. and Samantha Mumba. We don't have enough black, diverse, queer, disabled mm. voices, knowing that somebody can be black, queer, disabled, trans, whatever it might be, as a collective in their own identities. And for me, this track is a rallying cry for a better Ireland. And then for the Cranberries, yeah. it's dreams, right? And if I have been given anything from my family, but also from my friends, I have a very small group of friends um, who are extraordinary humans who I will often just send voice notes to when I am both delighted, outraged, exhausted and then in whatever mood I'm feeling. Yeah. And it will often start with their first name and then a word vomit of whatever it is that I'm thinking. They are the people who know me most. They are the people who give me permission to be my most self. Um, but more than anything, they encourage me to be ambitious and dream, which is very trite, but it is very true. I will often ask them for advice and insights from everything from the Met Gala to building a company to whatever it is that I'm struggling with emotionally and personally. And we don't give people permission to dream. We often map out their lives that you will go to school, you'll do the leave and search, you'll pick a college course and that's what you're going to do for the rest of your life if education academia is the route that you'll follow. And then you'll go off and you'll get married and you'll maybe buy a house, mm -hmm. depending on the market you will have a family and it'll all be lovely and then you'll have a pension and you'll retire. We are living in an era where that actually hasn't been possible for some time, we just haven't discussed it. But that is no longer true. It can't be true because the system isn't allowing it to be true. So we need to give people, to give people permission and opportunity to imagine and dream a different future for themselves, but also I think a different future for this country, which yeah. is where Denise and Dolores come Fit together. together. Yeah, and I think what, what one thing I always liked about dreams as well was uh, when you when you, when it came out, they're so ordinary looking. 
Mm. You know, you, and then when you read a little bit, when you think of how difficult Dolores's life, not, not in family way, but just how she didn't feel part of really any community. And there was this bunch of lads in a band who were trying to find something. And she came and sang for them, but she wasn't sure she could sing. Yeah. And, you know, she lived outside Limerick and she was from a rural A rock community. star from Limerick, like. You know, and from, out, from rural Limerick, yeah. you know. And then this thing, it just happens. And when you see them and you think, actually, you know, that's, that's ordinary. But it's yeah. extraordinary what they do with it. And it's the same, I think, with, with Denise as well. That she's just expressing frank views, extremely frank views. And then at the same time, she puts it in this musical setting that you can't help but not listen to it. But it comes a upon us. Yeah. Like, the only way I can describe it is like a wave, right? That you're like, oh, this is a lovely piece of music. And all of a sudden, it challenges. Yeah. everything you may have thought or believed, and, and that's the power of it. Um, Dreams is also the soundtrack to Derry Girls, which I am somewhat <laughs> obsessed with. Um, I just, yeah, I think it's amazing. Orla and her uh, stepping, I mean, it's just the great, or like the opening scene, and, you know, there's a bomb, and she's like, oh, my hair appointment. And I'm like, <laughs> because it brings together the extraordinary and yeah. the ordinary, because what is extraordinary for some has to be their ordinary. It has to fit in with the ordinary, um, yeah. So yeah. the two of those together, but listening to dreams, you have to close your eyes yeah. uh, and really take it in. And then for Denise Chyla, you have to have your eyes open yeah. and be ready to make a change, I think. Yeah. Great. Dan, can we, we take, if we can play the two together, maybe just one after the other, sorry. Ramp up maybe with dreams. We'll just play out with dreams, sure. I think, because it's a it's a lovely way to finish, I think. So I'd like to thank you so much, Shanine, for doing this. It's been a blast. Thank um, you so much. I can't believe you're all here in this match. <laughs> so everyone please, Sinead Burke. So Dan, let's play out with dreams, okay? There we go. What a great way to Thanks so much, Ned. Yeah. Um, I did. Um, I talked to Philip King last week. He was talking about Denise when they, when they filmed her in the National Concert or in the National Museum. He said it was one take. He said they didn't rehearse it because they couldn't, because it was live. And he just said, but he said as soon as they turned the cameras on, he said she's just there, you know. Amazing. And he said the camera just follows her. She doesn't follow the camera, you know. Amazing. You know? Amazing. She's so powerful. So confident, you know. Yeah. Just something else. Listen, that was brilliant. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> So I think you could just dance in yeah. the room. <laughs> just twirl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My very good friend, it's her birthday today and she's in the audience. So I might embarrass her. <laughs> oh, 
Limerick. Shouting yeah. them, eating it. Thanks again, everyone. If I Once again, to Sinead. And, and Sinead has a very important announcement tonight. You know the way earlier I was talking about my friends um, and how brilliant they are? Well, one of them is in the audience and it's actually her birthday today. And she's going to murder me. But thankfully we are socially distanced. So she may murder me later. But she has spent the day with me on her birthday, which is a trauma that I wouldn't give to many people. So I wondered if you wouldn't mind singing happy birthday to her with me. Uh, her name is Sharon and my hope, because I'm Mike. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you're welcome, she's Kelly. She's identified herself. Yeah, she's identified herself now. Yeah. Uh, if we could just sing happy birthday to her and my apologies for my singing. Are ready? Yes. One, two, three. Happy, happy birthday, birthday to you. To you. Happy birthday, Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Sharon. Well remembered. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Sharon.